1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 24. Today's trip scriptures. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the dead, the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God. The Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's, let's pray one more time. Yeah, Father, we, um, we're, we're really needy this morning, Lord, personally, uh, but also globally, corporately, we're, we're needy. We, we just invite you by your Holy Spirit to come and take your word, which we believe you've given to us for our life, for our flourishing, and, and you would have your way among us by your Spirit. Jesus, where we are resisting you in our lives, help us to bend the knee as we recognize you as Lord and King over all. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, um, but, but for me, when disaster strikes, as it, as it did this past Monday, um, my tendency is to begin to despair, and things begin to compound on each other, right? So the disaster in Turkey and in Syria is compounded by, by the nuclear threat in Eastern Europe, which is compounded, if you didn't know, by a, by a decade-long famine in East Africa which is compounded by, by whatever else happens globally this week. Despair sets in. Again, maybe you've ignored these global atrocities because your life itself is, is too overwhelming. Rebellious children, the death of loved ones, a, a work environment increasingly hostile or opposed or stressful. Despair sets in. I... I I love every text we preach from. I love our text this morning. I, I love our text this morning because it's so simple. Ready? Here's what it's saying. God has a plan. God has a people. And, and God has the last word. Do, do you hear that, Christ City? God has a plan. God has a people. And God will have, at the end of the day, when the story is done, the last word. So three points, really simply. God's plan, God's people, God's powers. Three Ps. I'm really proud of it. Um, that's how we're going to work through the text this morning. Yeah? You with me? God's plan. Look back at the text. And, and if you noticed, as Yann was reading, there's actually a series of events happening in our text this morning. One thing building on the other. Right? These things happening sequentially. Look, look at it with me. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority 
and power. Again, you need to know, we need to hear this morning, maybe especially this morning, God, God has a plan for you. But, but not just for you, God has a plan for cosmic history, for, for everything, for all of it. His hand's not off the wheel. He is not sleeping. He is not distracted. He is not negligent. He has his hands over it all and on it all. A plan hinted at in our text that that goes all the way back to the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 3. We're going to go back to Genesis 3 together. If you need a Bible, we have some at the back. Uh, Someone's back there. They can give it to you, I'm sure. But Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. I want to read that together. In Genesis 3, we we famously read of Adam's sin by which everything bad, death, decay, destruction, enters the world. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, listen to this question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat any of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Pause. The world of Genesis... The world of 1 Corinthians, the world of the Bible, as maybe you've discovered, is very different than ours. Whereas our world is by and large an individualistic world, right? I, me. The world of the Bible, by and large, is a collectivist world. We, us, right? This collectivist versus individualist disposition that we have today. And the problem for us then as Westerners trying to read the Bible is trying to get over our bias towards the individual. See, we read in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 through our individualistic lenses. We read this. For as by a man came death, and then again, for as in Adam all die. And if you are an individualist at heart like me, the first thing you think, maybe you even say it out loud, is, is what? You die. Also, that's not fair. What does Adam have to do with me? What's Adam to me? That's not fair. And Paul says, well, in fact, it has everything to do with you. See, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible invites us to see ourselves as part of a larger whole at every stage connected to a head. A larger whole at every stage connected to a head. And so again, in Genesis, notice in that account, though it was Eve who took the fruit and ate it, Paul says that Adam, as her head, ultimately bears responsibility. 
Later in the story, Israel is, is trying to conquer the promised land. A man named Achan, he takes some stuff that he should not take. And as a result of his sin, Israel is defeated in battle. Achan is killed, but also Achan's family is killed. Reaping the rewards of their head. Do you see that? It's not just an Old Testament thing, it's a New Testament thing as well. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Remember the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom? You, you remember that. We all remember that. Paul says, listen, you're bringing shame, not just to you individually, not just to you and this woman you know, individually, but to the whole community through your actions. I mean, even today, right? If the head of a, a governing body, be it the church or the police, or the government, if they sin, transgress the moral bounds of the day, everybody suffers. Everybody feels those effects. But, but what Paul's saying this morning is something a little bit different. He's saying, not only are we tied together socially, we're also tied together spiritually. Not only do we have a social or familial inheritance, we also, each one of us, have a spiritual inheritance. A spiritual inheritance. We are, he says, in Adam, born into this world with Adam as our head. And what's the result of having Adam as our head? Paul talks about this in Romans 5 at a greater length. But here he says, in Adam's sin, we find that we are also guilty sinners. In Adam's disobedience, we find that we too are born with hearts of re rebellion. See, even this morning, if you resist the idea of your inherent guilt as one born in Adam, then what I would say is, okay, show me your life without sin. Show me it. See, see Paul will say in Romans 5, death spread to all men because all men sinned. Because all men sinned. See, the, the, the sin of Genesis 3, the, the scene there is both unique and everywhere. It, it's unique in that sin begins in Genesis 3. But it's everywhere in that, and you know this, right? That scene, did God really say? Desiring language, I want that? That scene plays out in 10,000 places, in 10,000 ways, across 10,000 years. We, we, we all know this. We've all sinned and thus show that our familial trait goes all the way back to Adam. Far worse than biting our nails or male pattern baldness, we have the ugly familial trait of sin. The good news of the Bible, then, is that it's a story not of one man, but of two. Not of a first Adam only, but of a second as well. Look again at verse 20 with me. There Paul writes, but in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, what, shall all be made alive. Christ is our second Adam. Our second Adam. And where the first Adam was marked by disobedience, the second Adam, Christ, is marked by obedience, by, by righteousness. 
And while the disobedience of the first Adam brought death, the obedience of the second Adam brings eternal life forever. Remember, we saw this last week. But when Paul says that, that Christ is our first fruit, he's referring to Christ being both the promise, right? The rest of the harvest is coming. And the prototype, and it will look like Jesus, of our resurrection. Christ as the first fruit is both the promise and the prototype for, for our resurrection. It, it, it's amazing. It's wonderful. And then verse 23 adds this. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, we've seen this. Then at his coming, his return, those who belong to Christ. Now, I, I want to just zero into this verse for a second. The word order in verse 23, it, it can refer to something like sequentially, like in this sort of sequential order. But it can also refer to things being put in their right, uh, arranged, orderly place. So let me give you an example. My kids are in the room, and so I'll be careful. For 90% of the week, our kids' room is less than tidy. It's being generous. It's a mess. There are books everywhere. Things strewn across the ground. It's, 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 it's crazy, right? But to their credit, occasionally, maybe twice throughout the week, they will go in there and they will put things in their rightful place. The toys will go on the toy shelf. The clothes will go in their drawers. Uh, their, their beds will be made as they rightly should. That's the idea of this word here. Things being put in their right ordered place. See, God is doing the same work in our world, putting things in their right, ordered place. We saw it a few months ago when we looked at our worship gatherings. They are to be orderly as they reflect an orderly God. And now we see this order as it applies to the whole world. He is bringing, God is bringing all things, as we'll see next week, all things in subjection under Christ's feet. So listen, God's plan is not only to rescue us in Christ, not only to save us, but in Christ, our second Adam, we are to recognize him as Lord, as King, as boss and master and ruler. This is part of God's orderly plan. The one to whom Paul writes about in Philippians, who because he succeeded where Adam failed, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It has become so cliche, hasn't it? To speak of God having a plan for my life. I almost hesitate to use that language in the beginning. God has a plan. Drake has a song about that. God's plan. He just wraps a bunch of hedonistic bars and then says, God's plan, as if it works that way. We speak generally of God's plan, but what we want to see here is the specifics of God's plan, which is this. It's really simple. He's proclaiming Christ as Lord over all, and every knee shall bow. That's God's plan. That we recognize in the crucified Jesus that he is king. That's God's plan. 
That our rebellious hearts repent and turn to him for our salvation. That's God's plan. Christ said, you see it in the specifics. Only when we find ourselves submitted to Christ's kingship are we able to say we are indeed his people who his good plan is for. Point two, God's people. God's people. Again, verses 22 to 23. Look with me. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who, look at this word, belong to Christ. Those who belong to him. It's my opinion that culturally today, the language of belonging to someone ha has crossed over from being insensitive to now being wildly offensive. It's pretty offensive language today, right? I want to just test out this theory with you. For example, so my wife right here, I, I, I briefed her on this, by the way. She belongs to me. Now, I belong to her. But did you feel how uncomfortable that was? Now, there are some good reasons why that's uncomfortable some cultural baggage we have, why that's uncomfortable. But, but I think one of the primary reasons why that is so uncomfortable, why we all just kind of, <gasps> is because we like to stand on our own, don't we? Define ourselves on our own terms. Not in relation to somebody else. Not in relation to a group. No, we stand on our own. By ourselves. Bible teacher Doug Moo he writes that despite our desire to stand on our own, that we are all ultimately defined either in relationship to the person of Adam or to the person of Christ. He says this, all people, all people stand in relationship to one of the two men, one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. This idea of belonging to Christ should not be new to us. Remember in chapter 6, you do remember that because I was a bit about the prostitutes, so I know you remember. In chapter 6, Paul says what? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So in chapter 6, if our belonging to God was meant to inform our life today, in chapter 15, our belonging to God is meant to inform our hope tomorrow. Belonging to God. Here and here. Today and tomorrow. Now and forever, we belong to Christ. He owns us. He owns us. See, there are two fundamental differences between the work of Adam and the work of Christ. First, they differ in their scope. In Adam, all without exception, all without exception, all in Adam die. But Paul, he qualifies the all who should experience resurrection life as those in Christ. Only those in Christ are made alive. But they also differ in their power. So they differ in their scope, but they differ in their power. The theologian Herman Boving, he wrote, wrote this. He says, sin, it's the fruit of Adam, sin is mighty and powerful. But grace, eternal life, 
Resurrection life is far superior in riches and abundance. God's grace extended to God's people. That's what wins. That's who wins. And so the question is simple. It's not complicated. In whom do you stand this morning? If we were to draw your family tree right now, who would be at the top? Would it be Christ or would it be Adam? To whom do you belong? In the original context, these verses are revolutionary. Verse 23 is revolutionary. In other documents from the same time period, here in the first century in the Greco-Roman world, this phrase of belonging to Christ is also found in reference to Caesar. Of slaves saying in particular that they were of Caesar. They belonged to Caesar. A A Roman citizen could say that I belong to Caesar. That ultimately my patronage, my life, belongs to him. To to his will and and his plans and to the cult of the Roman Empire. And so Paul's subverting those powers here. Do you see that? He's saying you belong to Christ. We can relate. No? No? See, in the first century world, to belong to Caesar was to live a life of of ease, less suffering, more more financial opportunities, right? It's a smoother path. So too for us, though we boast that we belong to no man or no woman, our lives speak a different story. In reality, we are constantly pledging our allegiance to people and ideas that promise to what? One, make our lives easier. Two, make our paths smoother. And three, our future is less fraught with resistance. But if Paul is to be believed, all those promises are empty. 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 To belong to them is still, at the end of the day, to remain in Adam. And your future, despite the comfort that you enjoy now, is marked not by eternal life, but by eternal death. But, if you are in Christ, hear this, God's ultimate plan for you is not death, but life. Christ City, so I want to just urge you for a moment to shed your individualist inclinations and glory with me that for those of us who profess Christ as King, our life is now hidden with our Savior. I want to read these words from this old hymn I came across this week. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, A second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood, which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. To be in Christ today means not only that we will experience his resurrection life, but that today we are experiencing it now as his body, as we hold fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. We are joined to him. And and so listen, you might not be growing 
in your walk with Christ like you'd like to be growing in your walk with Christ. I'm not growing in my walk with Christ the way I'd like to be growing in my walk with Christ. We, we can share in that, yeah? We might not be growing how we want to be growing in the ways that we want to grow, but even for those of us whose growth is incremental, is that not also an occasion for worship, for praise, for celebration, instead of condemnation? Yes? With Adam as our head, not only was there no hope for growth, but all that futile spinning and working and striving was all destined to end in one place, death. But that's not us anymore. The new creation that you have become in Christ, the one that you can only faintly make out at times, is only going to increase until you walk fully and completely in newness of life at Jesus' return. Our God has a good plan for his people, and he will have the last word. Last point, God's power. At the end of the day, we look at our text. It would be meaningless if God, who stands over all, orchestrates all cosmic events, who comes so close as to bring us to himself in Christ, it would be meaningless if both these things were true, if ultimately he was impotent to bring us across the finish line, if he doesn't finish what he started. But again, in language that would have been wildly threatening to the first century powers. Again, Paul's, Paul's subverting some people here. Paul makes clear that Christ will have the last word. Look at verse 24. Paul says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Next week, for many weeks after that, we're talking about the end. So if you're like, I want to hear more about the end, stay tuned. It's enough for us to say this morning that in the end, Christ wins. In the end, Christ is glorified. In the end, the one who is ruling and reigning now is seen by all as the king of the universe. In the end, that's what happens. In the end. I want us to go back one last time to Genesis 3. Adam, as the head of Eve, sins. Tragedy strikes. And if our current sorrow and suffering is a tidal wave of discouragement, in Genesis 3, like I said, we find the source of the river. But even in Genesis 3, mingled with grief, we find grace, mercy, hope. God pronounces curses on the serpent, on Eve, and on Adam. And we find in his curse on the serpent these words, verse 15 of Genesis 3. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises to send a snake crusher. One who will be bit, wounded, even killed. Even as he, this offspring of Adam and Eve, crushes Satan. Destroys every evil thing and power and rule and authority in this world opposed to God. Which means this, being in Christ 
Again, it's not just a matter of your personal salvation, though it is. It's a matter of being on the winning side, the right side of history. Trust in Christ. Believe it, friends. God's good plan for his people extends beyond our church to our city. It extends beyond our city to our nation and beyond our nation to the world. And all who oppose Christ, Paul says early in 1 Corinthians 2, the rulers of this age, what does he say? Are doomed to pass away. Are doomed to pass away. Again, in case you don't believe it, are doomed to pass away. Let me end with this. There is this phenomenon called the return trip effect. Do you know it? The return trip effect. It seeks to explain why the trip home from your destination always feels shorter than the trip to your destination. Always feels easier to go home than it does to go to. Uh, I had the privilege of experiencing the return trip effect uh, one summer as I drove with our family eight hours north to visit other family. It's safe to say that on that trip, which ended up, of course, being much longer than eight hours, uh, the van grew antsy. The mutiny was at hand. The are we there yet, coming from the back seat, were only compounded by this growing sense that we were lost. In fact, we were lost. <laughs> See, one of the hypotheses as to why the return trip effect feels so much shorter, why the return trip feels so much shorter, is familiarity. As you drive home, your brain is able to mark the passing of time because you have these signposts, these landmarks. Three hours to go. Two hours to go. Oh, I know where we are. One hour to go. But on that initial trip into the darkness, into the unknown, you don't have any of those markers. It's completely disorientating. I think the same is true of our life. Most of us are going through this life blind. And maybe that's how you feel this morning. Like you're going through this life blind, purposeless and without direction. And maybe on top of that, you're filled with anxiety and fear because you don't know what's around the bend. Maybe your life is marked by short-sighted decisions because the goalposts keep moving and every time you think you're at the top, it turns out there's another summit to reach. But what if you knew the route? What if you knew the way to go? What if you knew what was to come? And though you did not, and could not know all the details of the what or the whys of your life, what if you knew big picture what was coming for you, indeed for all those who love Jesus as Lord? We do. Friends, God has a plan. It involves all people worshiping Jesus as Lord. God has a people, a treasured possession, those same people who worship Jesus as Lord are locked in, secure. Christ's resurrection is our guarantee that at his return, we will be claimed, claimed as those who belong to him. And God, and God alone, 
has the power to see it through. Christ City, today, we are being invited to rest in the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that caught in our own navel-gazing, consumed with our own thoughts, we have not looked up to see your plan. Forgive us. Help us by your Holy Spirit to be people who live with faith Faith that the work of Adam has been undone through the work of Christ. Faith that Jesus truly did rise from the grave. Faith that, faith that his resurrection is a guarantee that ours is coming. Help us, Lord, as we navigate the evil and despair of this world to live full of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more, of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.